We are studying the Ten Commandments in this sermon series that we're covering this fall called The Law of Perfect Freedom. Um, I was thinking this morning of an illustration for how to understand the law of God as Christian people, and it came to me this week in the form of an injury that I suffered at the gym. Uh, I was lifting weights with my son, and he was absolutely killing me in weightlifting. Uh, this in spite of the fact that I am 32 years older than my son. Uh, he was doing uh, pull-ups and chin-ups and dips and all these other things, and I was just getting absolutely killed. So I said, you know, I'm going to push this a little bit uh, in order to keep up with my son, in order to prove myself worthy of his admiration as a father. The next thing I knew, I was in urgent care. Uh, and I was being x-rayed and treated for a variety of injuries which I had suffered in my efforts to prove myself worthy of my son's affection. Now, I point that out to say that if we treat the Ten Commandments that way, we will get injured. If we say, I must do all of these things, I must lift these heavy weights in order to prove my worthiness to God, we will find ourselves sitting in a doctor's office with tremendous pain, wondering what went wrong. If, however, we realize that we are already loved and already accepted because Jesus did the heavy, heavy lifting for us, then all of this obedience and all of this uh, adherence to God's law will become not for us a, a, a curse, but a blessing. A way to get the blood sort of pumping through our system again in order to live the life that God has designed us to live. When seen in the context of the gospel of God's grace, then the law becomes for us the law of perfect freedom. Showing us the heart of God. Showing us how life works best on this side of the cross. So with that in mind, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. We're going to focus this morning on verse 15. But we're going to read actually verses 1 through 15 in order to set the context. And then we'll read our, our theme verse from James 1, 25. This is God's word starting in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, 
your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And now, James 1, verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a, a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. I pray, Lord God, that you would allow us to see Jesus so much more clearly through this commandment. I pray, Lord God, that you would change our hearts and make us new. We pray, Lord, that you would speak, for we, your servants, are listening. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, three Presbyterian ministers, let's call them Pastor Joel, Pastor Dave, and Pastor Sean, decided to go fishing. As they were walking down to the water, they discovered a giant duffel bag filled with money. More cash than any of them had ever seen in their entire lives. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So Pastor Joel said, do, desiring to do all things decently and in order, as Presbyterians are wont to do, we have to figure out a plan for what to do with this money. Should we give some away? Should we keep some? We have to come up with a plan. And so they did. Pastor David said, I have an idea. We'll draw a circle on the ground. We'll throw the money up in the air. And whatever lands inside the circle, we'll give to God. Whatever lands outside of the circle, we'll keep. Pastor Sean said, well, I think that's a good idea, but I've got an even better idea. How about this? We'll draw a circle on the ground. We'll throw the money up in the air. And whatever lands outside the circle, we'll give to God. And whatever lands inside the circle, we'll keep. So Pastor Joel, not to be outdone, said, I think I have a better solution than that. We'll throw all the money up in the air. And whatever God wants, God can keep. <laughs> when it comes to giving and generosity, I think we all have a little bit of Pastor Joel in our hearts, do we not? We say it is more blessed to give than to receive, but do we really believe that? This morning we're going to talk about the Eighth Commandment. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about giving and generosity. We're going to talk about stealing. Robbing from God and robbing one another by failing to recognize that our money is actually God's money. 
and that our calling in life is to manage his money, the money that he has given us, in a way that reflects the vision and values of the kingdom of God. So how do we do that? How do we give, save, and spend to the glory of God? It's an important question for all of us. According to Sonia Britt, a researcher from Kansas State University, money fights and money problems are the number one cause for divorce in the United States of America. Number one. More people get divorced in this country because of money fights and money problems, because they're not on the same page with their finances, than any other cause. According to another recent study, 64% of all Americans don't have enough cash on hand in order to handle a $1,000 emergency. So almost two-thirds of us, and I'm sure including many of us in this room, are living on the brink of financial disaster at all times, which is not good. Here's another fun one for parents. Did you know that the average private university in America costs $39,723 per year? The average public university out of state costs $22,000 plus per year. The average public in-state university costs just over $10,000 per year. And if you want your kids to attend Pepperdine University in Malibu, California, which I am told is one of the best universities in all of these great United States, then you will be forking over, wait for it, $85,202 per year. That is just <laughs> that is just north of $340,000 for a four-year undergraduate degree. Go waves. So where do we go for answers? Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Dave Ramsey? Well, whenever we're looking for life's uh, answers to life's biggest questions, and I think how should we handle our money certainly qualifies, the best place always to start is with God's Word. If you want to know the will of God, you always have to have your feet firmly planted on the Word of God. So what does God have to say about money? Well, in Proverbs 22, verse 7, we read that the borrower is the slave to the lender. If possible, we should avoid debt. In Matthew 22, verse 17, we read, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. So, we should pay our taxes, and we should support our local churches. Proverbs 13, 11, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Cryptocurrency, NFTs, zero down real estate. Probably not the best financial plan for you and your future if you want to adhere to the word of God. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. In other words, if you are content, you can feel rich even when you're poor. 
But if you're not content, you can feel poor even when you're rich. In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus said, You cannot serve both God and money. Money is a great servant. It's a terrible master. We're only scratching the surface. Did you know that there are more than 800 references to money in the Bible? Did you know that Jesus talked about money more than any other subject, including heaven or hell? 25% of all of Jesus' teaching was about money. Did you know that money is a heart issue? Jesus famously said, for where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also and so one of the most important questions that we can ask as we approach the eighth commandment is do i have the heart of an orphan or do i have the heart of an adopted child if you have the heart of an orphan you'll be a thief stealing is born of fear Fear that I don't have enough. Fear that God won't provide for me. Fear that I have to hold on to every dollar and every cent because someday the money might run out and it'll be a disaster. I'll be all alone. If you have the heart of an adopted child, you'll be outrageously generous. Generosity is born of confidence. Confidence that God has always and will always take care of me. Are you a giver or are you a taker? Is God a giver or a taker? If God is a giver, and I think the gospel proves that he is, how do we have the heart of God? These are some of the questions we'll try to answer this morning as we look at the shortest commandment in the Ten Commandments, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. If you're taking notes this morning, here's the outline. I want us to think about four principles that will guide our thinking when it comes to handling money to the glory of God. Four ways that God will help us to keep this eighth commandment. Number one, all our money is actually God's money. We're stewards of the money that God has given us. Number two, we shouldn't take God's money away from other people. Stealing in all of its forms is a sin. It's wrong 100% of the time. Number three, we should give God's money to other people. That's called generosity. And generosity is a blessing not only to the one who gives, but to the one who receives. And finally, fourth principle, number four, is we cannot outgive God. Giving and generosity is at the heart of the Christian faith. It is the heart of the gospel. And when we understand that our God is a giver, a God who gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to make spiritually poor people into spiritually rich people, then stealing becomes inconceivable. And giving becomes non-negotiable. By the time we're done studying this commandment, I hope that you will see that grace, the grace of God, 
given to us freely through Jesus is as priceless as it is free. Grace is the gift of God for the children of God. Are you ready? Let's take a closer look. We begin with our first principle, which is this. Our money is actually God's money. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, Pastor Joel. How is it that my money is actually God's money? Is this some kind of like Jedi mind trick where you're trying to convince me to give me your money? Is that, is that what you're trying to do here? Well, I, not exactly, but I do understand if you get suspicious when pastors start talking about money. It's sort of like uh, asking someone who sells life insurance if you should get more life insurance. You sort of know the answer before you ask the question, right? So, Pastor Joel, are you saying that I should give more money to the church? Well, funny you should mention that. Uh, That is exactly what I am saying. Just this week, I was talking to my friend Billy. Billy's an old-timer, a friend of mine, and uh, great guy, gregarious guy. Every time I see him, he's like, oh, Pastor Joel, how you doing? How's the church? I was talking to him this week. I was like, oh, man, it's going great, Billy. Uh, God's good. The church is going great. Family's going great. And I mentioned to him that I was going to be preaching this week on the Eighth Commandment and talking about giving, generosity, and money. And all of a sudden, oh, he had a million stories to tell me about a pastor down in Texas who had a house worth $32 million. And then another pastor, probably also from Texas, who had their own private jet, you know. And I assured him that even though my name is also Joel, that I don't have any of those things. (laughs) But he remained a little bit cynical that I was going to be talking to Christian people about giving and generosity and the Eighth Commandment. Again, I get it. Thieves come in many shapes and sizes, and even pastors, especially pastors, can be guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment. But, With all those caveats and disclaimers out of the way, the Bible is abundantly clear that everything that we have, every dollar, every cent, every house, every car, every investment, you name it, it all belongs to God. Every bit, everything. In Psalm 24, David writes, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In the book of Job, Job 41, God tells Job, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul asks this rhetorical question. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is, of course, nothing. It's all a gift from God. These and many other passages about the absolute sovereignty of God led the great Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper to conclude there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. An understanding of the absolute sovereignty of God is critical to our understanding of the Eighth Commandment. If my money is my money, then it's up to me what I do with it. But if my money 
is actually God's money, then it's up to him what I do with it. When it comes to our money and our possessions, we are not owners. We are stewards or managers of what God owns. We have fiduciary responsibilities to him. Like Adam and Eve, who were placed in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, not as owners of the garden, but as servants of the great and mighty God, we are trustees tasked with investing God's money in ways that reflect his character and his values as revealed to us in the Bible. So what does God want us to do with our money? Well, many things, but consider these. God wants us to use his money, the money that he's given us, to take care of our families. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, we read, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God wants us to use his money to provide for the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, we read, On the first day of the week, which was Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. In this case, the Corinthians were collecting money from the church in Corinth to give to another church, the church in Jerusalem, because the people there were suffering under a famine. God wants us to use his money to provide for the, for the poor. In Proverbs 19.17, we read, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him. For his deed. Now, when we don't do that, when we say my money is my money and God has nothing to say about it, and I will do what I want to do with the money that I have earned, then according to Malachi 3, we are robbing God. We're stealing from him. Now just, just let that sink in for a minute. Feel the weight of that. According to the Bible, the church is Christ's bride, and the poor are God's children, and God has given us a portion of what, of what we have, of he has given us in order to take care of God's family. Our money is ultimately his money. It all belongs to him, and we are stewards of the good gifts that God has given us. Here's our second principle. We shouldn't take God's money that he's given other people away from them. In the words of the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. We have no right to take the money or the possessions that God has given to other people without permission or without any intention of giving it back. That's called stealing. Martin Luther said that we break the Eighth Commandment Whenever we take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in loss to him. Stealing is about the accumulation of wealth at all costs. It's about taking whatever we want, whenever we want, even if that means we trample on the rights of other people to get it. Sometimes thieves look like muggers, 
or bank robbers or carjackers or cat burglars or shoplifters or pickpockets. Sometimes thieves look like Wall Street executives, big pharma CEOs, defense contractors, politicians, attorneys, mechanics, and yes, pastors. Sometimes thieves look like ordinary people like you and me, like employees who steal from their employers by goofing off at work, like employers who steal from their employees by not paying their employees a fair and just wage. Stealing can look like bribes. It can look like kickbacks. It can look like corruption. A friend of mine was once pulled over for speeding in Mexico, and you could probably see where this is going. The policeman said, well, here's the ticket. Uh, it's, uh, it, you, know, you can pay it at the courthouse later this week, or you can pay it uh, right here, right now. And so my friend said, well, how much is the ticket? And the police officer said, how much do you have? And when he opened his wallet and said, well, I've got $40, he said, how about your friend? How much does he have? You see, he was stealing from him. It was corruption. And the same thing, ha very similar thing happened to us, to Pastor David and I in Uganda. We were driving, and a policeman pulled us over, and uh, we could pay the, the ticket right there on the road if we wanted to pay it. And once the policeman determined that there were two Americans in the car, that fine increased exponentially. Again, corruption, that's stealing. Stealing can look like price gouging. How much did generators cost the week before the hurricane? How much does gas cost the week before the hurricane? How much does bottled water cost the week before the hurricane? You know, I once bought a, an umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm. I went in to pay for the umbrella. The guy rang it up for $5. He voided the $5 transaction right in front of me and rang it up again for $10. I said, I said what happened? Is this the rainy day discount that you're giving me here? But he could do that because it was pouring rain. I was in New York City. I was headed to a meeting. If I missed this meeting or if I showed up looking like I just bathed in my clothes, then I was going to lose the contract, which was worth way more than $10. He could have charged me $20 or $100, and I would have paid, paid it. But that doesn't change the fact that he was stealing from me. The point is this. A healthy a biblical view of money recognizes that stealing in all of its forms is always wrong. Why? We don't need to take any, what God has given to other people because God has given us more than enough. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, the Apostle Paul tells his young friend Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. Again, if we are content with what God has given us, whether we are rich or poor, then we will have no desire to steal from other people because we'll recognize that Jesus has given us everything that we already need. If you struggle with that, 
If you struggle with greed, if you struggle with stealing, if you struggle with accumulating more and more and more and feeling like you've never get enough, let me encourage you to remember that the we will never break the hold that materialism has over our lives until we become generous people, until we become content with what God has given us. Trust him. Trust God. He loves you. He will always take care of you. In Romans 8, verse 32, we're reminded, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give, give us all things? Here's our third principle. We shouldn't, take what God has given other people, that's number two, we should give God's money to other people. One of the most interesting commentaries on the Eighth Commandment in the Scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, where the Apostle Paul writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, a thief hasn't stopped being a thief until he or she becomes a generous person. So what does generosity look like in the kingdom of God? How can we give in a way that reflects the radical generosity of Jesus? Let me give you four thoughts, four biblical guidelines for generosity. The first is that we're to give thoughtfully. Thoughtfully. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul writes, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Now, is spontaneous giving a good thing? Yes, of course. If you feel moved in the moment to give, then certainly you should. But normally, a life of generosity requires some deciding. It requires some planning beforehand. If you're not doing this now, let me encourage you to decide before the month begins or before the year begins how much you are planning to give to the church, to missions, to people in your life, family members who might be in need. I've talked to, to people who have decided in advance to have a, a budget item, which is simply called random generosity don't you love that it's so cool that budget item is money that these folks have planned in advance to purchase a meal for a stranger money that they have set aside in advance to go to the waffle house and give a 500 percent tip more than that waitress will earn on her entire shift maybe more than she will earn her entire week of hard work serving tables at that restaurant. Whatever it is, when it comes to giving, the old saying holds true. If we, plan, if we fail to plan, then we plan to fail. Generous giving, the kind of giving that glorifies God, requires intentionality. Whether it's deciding to tithe or deciding to give to missions or family members in Jesus' name, give thoughtfully. 
Second principle for generosity is we're to give sacrificially. Who gave more than the little old lady who put two pennies in the collection in the temple? According to Jesus, nobody. Because she gave out of her poverty. She gave sacrificially. Who gave more than the Christians of the church in Macedonia? The Christians in the church of Macedonia were some of the poorest Christians in all the churches that Paul had worked with, and yet they took up a collection in their congregation to give to the even poorer Christians who were in Jerusalem. According to the apostle Paul, they gave more than anyone, regardless of the dollar amount, because they gave sacrificially. A few of you have already heard this story, but I'll tell it again because it was very deeply impactful to me. Uh, when we went to Uganda this summer, uh, Pastor David and I went to a tiny village about two hours outside of the city. And when I say it was poor, it was cement floor, uh, dirt floor, plastic chairs that were older than us, you know, and this is a very, very poor church. And every day after we were doing a pastor's conference for different church leaders, and after every service, they would sing and dance, and everyone would come walk up to the front and put their offering on the table where they served the Lord's Supper, and that would be the place where they gave their offering. Well, on the final day of the, cof- of the, um, of the, the conference, they put a chair, a little blue chair, up in front of the group, and people from all over came to the front, and they brought fruits and vegetables and sugar cane and money and two chickens two live chickens that they brought to the front they told us when they were done making this collection that the collection that they had taken was for us we who make more in a day than they would make in a month of hard work they gave out of their poverty they gave sacrificially and because they did that they were a blessing not only to to us we we marveled at the grace of god at work in their hearts but also they received the blessing of participating in the generous work of the kingdom of god they gave because god had given to them sacrificially. Let me encourage all of us, when you're thinking about giving and you're thinking about generosity, think about ways that you can give sacrificially. Think about ways that you can adjust your lifestyle in order that giving actually impacts your life in some way. Go through your budget, go through your spending and say, what can I cut back on in order that I might give more. Again, this is a personal thing, and I can't give you exact guidelines, but it is a tremendous blessing to give sacrificially to the work of the Lord. The third principle for generosity is that we are to give joyfully. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, returning to that verse, Paul writes, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, that's thoughtfully, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving is absolutely the best thing that you can do with your money. 
There's nothing better than giving. It's so much fun. If you are not having fun with giving, you're not doing it right. There's a lot of things that we do with our money that are not fun at all. Paying the rent, paying the mortgage. I've never said, oh man, that was so much fun. <laughs> paying the electric bill when it's like 103 outside and uh, you're, it, I don't know, you're scratching a check for 500 bucks or whatever it is now, you know. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is not fun. I, I, I've, there's, I have a... I have so many regrets when it comes to spending money, things that I've spent money on that have been absolutely worthless. I have a, basically a closet in my house, which is like a hall of shame for all the stupid stuff that I bought, you know. Just put it in the closet, you know. Maybe we'll need it someday. Probably not. I have never regretted generosity. Never. I have never given to something that I believe in, whether it's this church whether it's to missions or individual missionaries or through some nonprofit or some uh, charitable group in the city, I have never regretted one cent that I have spent or given to make this world and this city a better place. I would do it a hundred times over. There is nothing more joyful than being able to distribute God's money. It's like being Santa Claus. Every day of the year. It's awesome. Joyful. Fourth principle for generosity is we're to give confidently. 2 Corinthians 9.10 says, He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Don't be afraid to give. Don't give with a little thought in your mind saying, I wonder if I'll have enough. I'll wonder if God will take care of me. Now, don't be reckless in your giving, of course. Make a plan, stick to the plan. But at the same time, remember, God will always take care of you. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, taught us, after reminding us how Jesus feeds the birds of the, of the heavens and clothes the lilies of the field, said this, Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Fourth principle for giving generosity, last one, is this. Probably the most important one is that we cannot outgive God. The heart of giving is the heart of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Here is the good news. Here is the gospel of our salvation. Jesus, who was and is the richest man who ever lived, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, made himself poor, taking on the form of a servant, a slave, the most exalted man who 
ever lived was humiliated, crucified next to two thieves so that spiritually impoverished people like us might be transformed into heirs of the kingdom of God. So the message of the Bible isn't money is bad and rich people are bad. That's poverty theology. It's not biblical. The message of the Bible isn't money is good and rich people are good and God wants you to be rich. That's prosperity theology. It's heretical. It's not what the Bible teaches. The message of the Bible, the core message of the Bible is that the richest person who ever lived became poor so that the poorest people who ever lived might become rich. Rich in grace, rich in mercy, rich in joy, rich in hope. When you understand that, God's generosity will change your heart. It'll unlock a superpower in your life. The ability to change other people's lives through radical generosity. Instead of taking and taking and taking in violation of the Eighth Commandment, you will begin giving and giving and giving in fulfillment of the Eighth Commandment. You will be blessed and you will be blessing to others. This morning, let me encourage you to bring Jesus your nothing, and he will give you his everything. Let those who steal, steal no more. Rather, let us give, even as we receive the grace of God through Jesus, our Savior. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the riches of your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts, that we might become the most generous congregation on earth, that we might be people who are known for having open hands as people who are willing to give and give and give so that others might experience the wonder of the gospel of your grace. Lord Jesus, would you hear our prayer and would you change our hearts? For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.